Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week we ask whether Israel Folau is just another victim of woke capitalism, we take a tour through the new bank of ScoMo, taking the risk out of home loans, and our US correspondent Chris Berg will tell us about an unemployment rate in that country which is the lowest it's been since 1969. As always, we'll close by talking about our picks for books and culture, including a new book on chronic capitalism out of the US, an SF masterwork by Shishan Lu, a new book on Goethe, and a rare excursion into opera brought to us by Bella de Brera, the latest production of Cosi Fun Tutte. I'm Scott Hargraves, editor of the IPA Review. I'm joined in the studio today by the IPA's Director of Research, Daniel Wild. Good morning. Also, the aforementioned Bella de Brera. Good morning. And finally, on the line from New York, my co-host and RMIT luminary, Dr. Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Great to have you, Chris. And we'll hear a little bit more about what's happening in the US in a minute. Looking Forward is, of course, brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're one of the nearly 5,000 members making this program possible, thank you so much. But if not, this is your chance to join by following the links in the program notes from as little as $22. We'll come back to Israel Folau next, but I want to lead off by talking about the, uh, the signature policy that was included in Scott Morrison's campaign launch on Sunday, which is a new scheme for... Deposits for first home buyers. It is another day, another big government uh, intervention into the economy, this time into the housing market. Uh, the latest uh, proposal uh, that both Labor and the Coalition support is uh, for there to be a, a provision for home buyers, prospective first home buyers, only to need a deposit of uh, 5% rather than needing the usual 20%, with the government uh, going to fill the remainder. So the way that basically works is. Usually, if you've only got less than 20%, you need to get uh, what's called uh, lender's mortgage insurance. And that's basically a way for the banks uh, to hedge any risk that the borrower is unable to meet their mortgage payments. Uh, instead, that th- this proposal will obviate the need uh, for the borrower to get that insurance. And instead, it will be the good old taxpayer that will be bailing out the banks in the event that a first home buyer who is under this scheme cannot pay uh, their mortgage repayments. Now, it's uh, available to about 10,000 prospective first home buyers, which is around about 10% of them of that market. Uh, and it will be for individuals earning up to $150,000 or couples up to $200,000. Now, this sounds like something taken out of the playbook of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, and we'll have to see how fast this grows. Chris, uh, do you get the sense that this is a recipe for a subprime crisis? <laughs> Look, yeah, I mean, the Commonwealth is assuming a lot of risk and to the extent that this will cause a subprime crisis, this is this is the sort of the, the setup for it to do so. We have to, there's a few things I will point out there and, and um, this is not to defend the coalition's policy, which I think is abominable, but um, we're not like the US yet because we don't have that structure that really built up over the course of decades that subsidized and, and regulated the housing market. The real issue that we have in Australia with house prices um, is the, the supply problem, um, which is uh, the, the state governments are not releasing enough land. There are not enough houses being built to match demand. Now, when I first heard of this policy, I mean, the, my, my first reaction was obviously um, horror that this could come out of a supposedly free enterprise focused government. But the second reaction was, well, you know, if we're going to be throwing 
money away. Why don't we take the $500 million that they've allocated to this plan and just pay the state to release more supply? That would, why are we tackling the symptoms rather than the root cause of the problem, which is state government policy? Well, I was going to ask Bella because, I mean, this, this isn't about good policy. It's about winning an election. I mean, what, what, what is the continuing appeal of, of home ownership? You know, what, what are they really trying to tap into to hear, Bella? What's, what's, their, what's their social agenda, do you think? Um, isn't it the, the sort of the original Thatcherite idea that property is central to freedom? And there's sort of, isn't it a nod to a, a more conservative idea that, that if you have property, then it, it, it then encourages sort of economic flourishing and everything else. But it's really, as an outsider, it seems very badly thought through. And it I wasn't just... And I just don't know why you'd be putting more people into... Isn't it the opposite to what's been going on recently, which is making it much harder for people to, to, to take out loans if they don't have the deposit? Isn't this the opposite to what we've been doing for the last five years? Well, I mean, uh, Bella, that, that's exactly right, because this has to be fed through the changes in the banking sector as well. So we're getting um, subsidies on one end and regulations on the other end, um, in part to deal with, I suspect, um, some of the consequences of the subsidies, which is exactly what you say, that credit is tightening. But um, I, I, I think what your, your point is absolutely right. The, the, the fact that young people really struggle to get into the housing market more now than in any time in the last 50 years is a serious Problem. I, I, an ownership society is a, a sort of grounded society. It's a society in which everybody feels like they have a stake. It's to own a house is to move your way through the middle class. It's a form of savings. This is this is a really big problem. The failure to bring young people into the housing market as well. But as I say, it has one very specific cause which is that supply is not matching demand. We need to act on supply. And, of course, the other way you can get supply to match demand is by reducing demand. And so the other key mm. cause has been uh, mass migration, which has pushed uh, many Australian citizens um, to the outer suburbs, into tiny apartments or into renting. And so um, there's a supply problem, absolutely, and there's a big demand problem in, in Melbourne and Sydney. And demand is what uh, initially caused this issue. I don't believe that people should have to surrender the amenity of their suburbs um, to accommodate um, a rapid population that's not been um, consented to by the population and has not been planned for. So there's, of course, the demand side of the equation. What, the broader what? issue, I think... Uh, look, yeah, I, I think... That there is, I, I, I don't quite agree with that because um, the reason that we want low regulation, so we want looser planning laws, is so that we can deal with any changes in the supply or demand matrix. So whether that is just changes in preferences, changes in um, the economy, changes in interest rates, all that sort of thing. And yes, absolutely changes in population. But rather than acting on demand, we should just think what is preventing the market from adjusting to demand shocks? To uh, I mean, you know, population has been increasing for a long time and relatively steadily. But um, when, why wouldn't a society be able to build enough houses for whatever level of population and the reason is just pure regulatory stupidity but rather than take that on it's like a band-aid policy it's rather than uh address the underlying causes on both the supply and the demand side but it, it must be something in what in what uh bella was describing in terms of middle class aspiration that the that the labor party uh immediately matched 
the policy. And one of the best criticisms I saw was, oh, this just proves uh, how terrible Labor is. Another uncosted policy. <laughs> I thought, well, <laughs> that was a, not a bad criticism by a Liberal of, uh, uh, for adopting a Liberal policy. But uh, What about the idea the, um, the the very many houses that are owned by foreign foreign buyers who are just they're just sitting empty? Yeah, if you go down to the Docklands, just, it's, all, it's yeah. all completely There's empty. There's nobody it's in there. A There's lot just, of... Yeah, pair of shoes at the front door. To make well, my, my, my home is empty. Yeah, that's my exactly, home is empty during the day exactly as well. Right. But I think but, Bella, Bella touched on an interesting <laughs> point with Margaret Thatcher, which is, um, it actually goes back to Menzies. I mean, Menzies really understood the importance of home ownership and saw it as a bullock against socialism and against communism. And the reality that the right, the right doesn't get this, which is people won't be capitalists. People won't support capitalism if they're not capitalists. And what we're going to see, because home ownership continues to decline, this policy, this home deposit scheme, will push up prices because it will push up demand. Um, what we will see, and this will start in Victoria within the next decade, is growing uh, growing coal, calls from an expanding rental class to heavily regulate the terms of rental conditions. We will see price con- even more price controls and tenure controls. I can guarantee you within a decade we will have things like minimum three-year uh, tenancy agreements, uh, prices fixed, things like priority given to incumbent tenants and all a range of different uh, matters will come up and they will be adopted and implemented firstly in Victoria, I believe, and expanded to the rest of the country because renters will grow. They don't have as much of a stake a, a stake in the future. They don't have as much capital stock. and They're not by nature going to be capitalists, but they will be raising their families in a local area and they will want stability so they can keep sending their kids to the local school and so on and so forth. So declining home ownership is an existential threat um, to the basic tenets of a free enterprise capitalist system. There's, uh, having not thought about this until you just said that, they're, they're reading the Financial Review, there's an interesting debate going on in terms of um, the mass rental market because historically in Australia, uh, rent rentals, uh, the demand for rental uh, houses and apartments has been accommodated through negative gearing, but of course the Labor Party has now decided that negative gearing is bad. Now, what the push is to change the rules, supposedly level playing, level the playing field, so that instead of building apartment towers uh, for sale, which is the Australian model, we could actually migrate more to the American model, which is building apartment towers for rental. Now, this, interestingly enough, it, uh, is a feature of of the US. Um, uh, Trump, Trump's father and and mother made a lot of their money. Uh, not out of uh, development in the classic mold, but by build and own. And uh, uh, Trump's mother apparently used to go around and collect the rent. This is this is part of his his backstory that uh, you know they uh, from from rags to riches, or in Trump's case, uh, from riches to riches. Um, I think Dad might have bailed him out a few times. But if if this scenario that you paint um, is coming to pass, I think part of that also would be. Uh, that that build to rent model, and that's and that's when you really can start to demonise landlords and have things like rent control, like you have in the in 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 the very New York that in which Chris Berg is sitting at the moment. <laughs> well, they've gotten rid of a lot of that, but happily, uh, so I, I Dan, I, I agree completely that this is an existential um, crisis when you've got an entire generation locked out of. Now, it's not just the housing market; it's sort of building capital in the most traditional way that people have been able to build capital. It, it makes our cities. Um, I mean, it makes our cities very expensive, if nothing else. But it also just makes our cities less dynamic. In fact, last week I was in 
San Francisco. And San Francisco is a very strange place because so much of the world's global economic output has really come from Silicon Valley. But it is just a very, um, it, it's A, a very expensive city and it's a very poorly run city at the same time. And the reason that that is, is because of extremely high accommodation prices. So um, a lot of the people who work at minimum wage or just you know not extremely high salaries have to come in from a very long way. San Francisco looks like what a extremely supply limited city will look like. Great for a sliver of very wealthy people and great fun to visit, but by and large, not a functioning city. We do not want to go down that path. And, and, and we very clearly, I, 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 I feel, I, I feel like we're, we're having a sort of a, a retro debate here because the IPA has been arguing for the, um, to argue to reduce constraints on supply for absolute decades. That has been an argument that we have won, but the neither the coalition at the federal level or the state governments seem to accept what is a blindingly obvious thing that you need to be able to move supply to meet demand. Well, I think a part of that is probably the, the construction industry is very you know, important and, and powerful. And so there's always an incentive for, and also local government and always an incentive to expand regulation and the usual kind of bureaucratic regulatory creep that you get inevitably in any kind of scenario like this. Um, but I think there's also a more fundamental issue, which is the Australian way of life. I mean, the Australian way of life has always been associated with houses and suburbs and people driving cars um, and the other things that come with, you know, big green spaces, football ovals, kids playing sport. And, you know, that might sound sort of quaint and, and, and out of date, but I think a lot of people still want that. And I don't, I don't think the policy case for forcing people to surrender their way of life is particularly strong. I don't, I don't see why people should have to do it. Um, I don't think that the local amenity and uh, attractiveness of suburbs needs to be sacrificed to have more and more supply. Well, no, but I mean, if, if that's the position that you want to take, then, then, I mean, we're going to have incredibly expensive house prices for a very long time. We're going to lock young people out of the housing market and we're going to lead to the existential crisis that I completely agree is going for. So um, this is a this is a supply on the outside, the the, the further out suburbs. And of course, it's a, a not in my backyard attitude in the inner city suburbs. So I, I, I feel for people who feel like their um, environment, their city and urban environment is not the same as it was 50 years ago, but nothing is the same as it was 50 years ago. Um, we have to, we, we live in a fast paced dynamic market and we have to accommodate that unless we want to have major problems like this housing crisis. And indeed, in the latest IPA review, which you will get if you're a member, you might have it already, there's a review of a book, The Land of the Golden Cities, by John Carroll, uh, that Andrew Bushnell and I uh, interviewed him about his book, about how Melbourne is it trying to adapt to the challenges that uh, Dan is talking about, and you can make up your own mind about whether we actually are or not. Uh, I just want to issue a warning to our listeners, a very important warning, Um Drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists and idolaters. Hell awaits you. Repent. Only Jesus saves. You may have heard this before, if you've, uh, unless you've been living under a rock. Apparently this was the Instagram post that Israel Folau, an Australian rugby union player, uh, issued about five weeks ago. Now, what we want to talk about today is not so much that post, but the reaction to it and how it's playing out with uh, the Australian rugby union 
uh, the sponsors of the ARU and the Wallabies and so on and so forth. Is this the rise of woke capitalism? And woke capitalism is a new term to enter the political lexicon and broadly speaking it means corporations, businesses and other captains of industry championing social progressive causes, whether it's um, you know, gay marriage, climate change, feminism, environmentalism, and so forth. Uh, we've seen the rise of that over you know many large companies, you know, the banks, the big mining companies, and so forth, supporting these kind of causes. And we see it with Israel Folau, and the link there is with Qantas, who is the major sponsor of Rugby Australia, who of course was a very uh, vocal supporter of of gay marriage and uh, was arguably behind Israel Folau sacking. Uh, We've also seen it with examples like companies pulling their advertisements from Sky News, Pizza Hut being an example. So apparently Sky News After Dark is an evil right-wing network of political operators that uh, the left want to shut down. And so you have companies saying, no, we're not going to advertise because we're scared of losing uh, patronage. And, of course, the famous Gillette uh, commercial, which was... Uh, basically painting men as uh, you know, toxic masculinity, boys will be boys, uh, and they change their slogan from a best a man can get to the best men can be. Who the hell knows what that means? <laughs> but um, that, broadly speaking, is what woke capitalism is. Now, I see this as something that is very much um, a threat to the normal way we would see the operation of a market-based um, economy, but people have different views on whether this is is good or bad. Chris, where do you come down on this? Yeah, um, uh, I think it's complicated. So um, I'm not comfortable with a lot of the work capitalism stuff. On the Israel Flower point, we talked about the Israel Flower case a couple of weeks ago, and I'm deeply, deeply uncomfortable with um, the idea that he would be sacked by Rugby Australia. I, I think that I, I support his right to sign any contract he wants. But I, I'm really uncomfortable with people getting sacked for their, their political or religious or cultural views or what, what have you. Um, I think, that, however, we have to be a bit more sp- a bit careful when we talk about some of the sponsorship deals as well. So it's not just Qantas, um, who's, uh, Qantas is a sponsor of Rugby Australia, but ASICS um, specifically cut its own direct sponsorship deal that it had with Israel Folau. Now, that is really a corporate branding decision on behalf of ASICs. Now, they, uh, there's there's a big difference between sacking someone for their views and declining a corporation declining to use that person to enhance their brand, regardless of what we think about the the vibe of the um uh, the the direction or the political stance that these firms are taking. I, I read a really interesting piece on CapEx um, uh, just this morning, actually. Um, on called what's wrong with woke capitalism, and it's not a defense of woke capitalism, but it's an inter- It makes a really interesting point that woke capitalism completely defangs wokeness per se. It sort of takes the very aggressive politics out of it in some funny way. And the example they used that I really like was the Colin Kaepernick. Of course, Colin Kaepernick was um, uh, sponsored by Nike. And he got into this huge political debate with Donald Trump, as we all remember. And then he came out um, with an ad that said, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Now, what is that slogan missing? Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. It's completely free of identity politics. It's almost individualistic. It's almost 
no, I wouldn't say free market, but it's sort of, it, 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 it's almost liberal in that way. And I just thought it was an interesting point that the wokeness shared by these corporations is not the wokeness of the Twitter left wing. It's sort of a defanged middle class bourgeois wokeness. And to the extent that, you know, that's a countervailing trend that we might not be that opposed to. It's uh, yes, the capacity of capitalism to just subsume everything. That's a very Marxist <laughs> critique, but uh, maybe it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I think there's there's still something very disturbing about this. And and actually, you're, you're right to make a distinction between ASICs and Qantas. I mean, if ASICs wants to dissociate themselves, then then um, uh, that's fine. But um, uh, Qantas and the ARU, I wonder whether it's uh, the tail wagging the dog a little bit. And I, I think I'm, I'm not a uh, rugby union's not my major code, but I was, you know, I've always, uh, like so many of us, been, you know, impressed by the the All Blacks over so many years and the sort of the aura that they have uh, out of New Zealand for being hard nuts. Um, you know, three World Cups, um, you know, out of a out of a quite small country. And sponsorship historically was always companies looking to associate themselves with a set of values uh, that a sport or a sporting team had. I feel like now what's that, what's actually happening uh, to something like the Australian Rugby Union and other beneficiaries of, of, of uh, Qantas Largesse, it's almost like saying instead of the company associating itself with a set of values um, that an organisation has – they're defining the set of values and then saying you must conform to these, and I, f- I feel like that's a slippery slope for these organisations because once 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 you've lost control of your own values, um, then what's left? What's your future? Is this what? And that, the well, interesting thing, the interesting thing there, I I think, is that companies have arguably always done this. So there's an argument that Ross Dowhat uh, presents in in a column from last year on woke capitalism, which is that. Um, basically companies will saddle up with whoever's in power in order to get their tax cuts and to have less regulation. And so um, the right used to be the dominant cultural and political force in the 50s and um, early 60s. And so you had this basic idea of a family living wage. You had a, an accommodative, broadly relationship with, with unions and labour. And that was just reflective of the moods of the times, that they would do that because that was the political arrangement that existed um, now it's the left that have power, and so they saddle up next to the left, saying, "Yeah, we care about climate change, we care about all of these um, social progressive issues. Um, just you know, make sure that you cut our taxes and and don't uh, don't regulate us too much." So this could just be pure capitalist self interest driving it, uh, rather than sort of fundamental values of of the organisation. I think it's actually yeah. um, I think it's actually self sabotaging. I think the whole idea of woke capitalism is is impossible anyway because wokeness is not about capitalism. Wokeness is about socialism. It's not. It's. It's. So how can you have these CEOs and these executives who are who are deliberately undermining the whole purpose of their roles and their and their companies? And you can see it going wrong. So you know the Gillette ad had a lot of. Well, there was a huge backlash against the Gillette, rightly so, by by its custom, by its you know its men. <laughs> it's cl- it's by men. <laughs> by its men. Actually, by the by, product, by yeah. the customers who by the who stopped buying the product, so yeah. that that the sales but, have yeah. actually gone down. So I think it's. And there's, there was a um, there was a research paper done in 2013 at LSC and the University of California that showed that these do-gooder CEOs are, are rubbish CEOs in the end because they're more in, in, <laughs> they're more concerned with imposing this ideology on the company than they are actually managing and and making a profit and keeping 
the stakeholders happy. And I think it's terrible. And I think it shows this this insane obsession with an ideology, a left progressive ideology that is being that is being imposed on on the on the market and on the customers, whether they want it or not. And it, and it goes becomes, wrong for the companies. That that becomes an empirical question or a competitive question, and um, there are. And it's quite obvious that a lot of these campaigns have not worked if the goal was to boost sales or share prices or however you'd like to manage, uh, however you'd like to measure them. Um, but there are a lot of campaigns that go wrong. I mean, there are a lot of non-political campaigns that fail. Um, I think it's very clear that the firms are, I, I think there's a lot of Dan's argument that this is um, uh, sidling up to the side of politics that might be able to deliver something for them. But I think there's also an element that they are trying to chase uh, generations that are um, more progressive on the issues or more, more left wing on the issues that they're focusing on. And there's a big part of this is marketing strategy. There's also an element that for, you know, for a hundred years, there's been a belief out in many parts of the community that firms should have a responsibility beyond profit, which is a position that I decry, but it seems the large majorities of consumers think that. So firms, again, are chasing rather than rather than leading. I, I, sometimes we, we look at these big companies, we look at Qantas and we look at Nike and we look at Gillette and, and, and they seem to be going against what we think are some really core fundamental principles or just making some political claims. Uh, They're probably just, for the most part, responding to what they perceive to be consumer demand or what they perceive to be. I think that, I think that we've got, we're at a stage in, in, in the world where you'd only make that, you'd only be a CEO of these companies if you fully subscribe to the, the progressive left's ideology. I think that that would be you wouldn't make it to that point in a company if you weren't on that on on side. And I think they're so they they are so ideologically driven that they will be using their positions to to hopefully change the minds and the hearts of the consumers to the detriment of the of the profit of the um, success of the company. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit well, more with Bella, Bella, Chris. I think you know there is a wider cultural shift, and uh, these CEOs are not some kind of, um, you know, data-driven demigods. You know, they're, they're part of the cultural shift. And, of course, this is why we keep uh, they keep trying to change the rules around board governance, um, you know, in, in Australia through the ASX, mm. and, uh, you know, getting harangued by um, by the regulators about how they should assess climate, climate risks and, you know, get on board with diversity and all the other issues. They're, they're essentially creating a culture of corporate governance in which only CEOs who are actually really part of that yeah. culture in a really deep way can actually thrive. And you can guarantee that, that CEOs who don't subscribe to it won't hang around for long. Just like in academia, if, you've, if you're a genuine, you know, old school academic and you actually want to study something decent, at, at once you retire, you're going to be replaced with, a, with, a, with an identity politics driven ideologue. It's going to be the same in companies. Why, why not? I think, that's, I think that's right. But what, what Chris is saying is very interesting to me because if it's true then I'm not sure what this means for our future. Because if you have, if, it is, if this is, let's say, a customer-led uh, strategy, so, you know, the, let's just suppose, I'm not convinced that this research exists, by the way, but let's just suppose for the sake of argument that they have said this segment of our customer base, we're young millennials, let's say, for the sake of argument, will buy our product, will do better in the market simply if we cater to their political views. Let's say that's true, which is no doubt partly driving this. What does that mean for the future of capitalism if everybody has 
terrible ideas. <laughs> if all these customers are demanding <laughs> anti-capitalist uh, things from businesses, um, they have these really bad left-wing ideas, the entire basis of the market-based economy will start catering towards these illiberal uh, market segments. What what do we do with that? I'm very uncomfortable with that, and I'm not convinced that is a good long-term strategy for freedom. Ironically, the free market may make us less free. No, look, and but doesn't this become a competitiveness question? And so, if if a lot of it is coming from so the the, the dynamic that Bella spelt out there, which is um, a sort of and and Scott an internal corporate social responsibility dynamic, if it's coming from the firms themselves, then um, that creates an awesome opportunity if you are a non-work capitalist, woke capitalist um, firm to, to out-compete them in the market. But I, I just have like to say- Like a dollar shave company, yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, precisely. Um, but but I, I, I just have to say that some of these companies, they're just, they're just not that woke. So- um, you know, so Uber, for instance, a, a, a perfect example of a Silicon Valley company. When when I was in San Francisco last week, um, Uber was on strike. Now that strike, sorry, the Uber drivers were on strike, but that strike was a complete failure because they were, in fact, Uber was rather than um, uh, you know bowing down to the progressive causes and increasing or, or over-regulating driver relationships or whatever, drivers and riders just wanted to keep connecting with each other there's you know we, we've had this for a long time so we've had these before we called it woke capitalism we called it greenwashing which was when in firms pretended to be more environmental than they are you know you go into a hotel room these days or for the last decade and there'll be these little signs saying because we want to save water we need to reuse towels to limit water use and we encourage you not to not to dispose of your towels. Now, that's that's got nothing to do with the environment. That's just because they want to save money. So that is a perfect example of greenwash. And I, I, I really feel that the woke capitalism side of this story, um, it, there's there's a lot less to it yeah. than we think. And we've got to really we've got to be really careful not to be sort of turn into sort of right of center snowflakes here. Yeah, but just I think people. Uh, I think there's still some something. Some companies do things we don't like. Yeah, there's still something in what in what Dan says though, which. Uh, uh, I'll reflect on afterwards because it's it's um, uh, it's a theme which is an old theme. Whether you know, um, uh, I'm thinking, of, say, Schumpeter, the the idea that you know within a capitalism, you know, that contains the seeds of its own destruction. Through um, he was more focused, perhaps, on on intellectuals that you know it actually enables the growth of ideas, which then undermine the very foundations. Yeah, of an open society has its own destruction because it allows illiberal people, unopen people, within it. That's yeah, look, what we're there's a tension um, that yeah, that, yeah that's that, true that's that, that's true but Schumpeter wrote that in uh, is it 1934 and and you know capitalism is a hardy beast. I just want to bring one other thing to the equation here, which worries me, and maybe Chris can uh, give me a more optimistic spin of you know why why I shouldn't worry so much. But look, let's just that's take my, a, that's my role. Yeah, yeah, that's my role. Let's just take a real example, which is the big four banks. Okay, they they have a lot of control over the capital flows of our economy now. It's not inconceivable that they will coalesce and say, none of us are funding coal anymore. Um, what do you do then? Because you need... Now, I accept there's more than four banks, but really, if you want to get financing for a big major project, you're probably going to have to go to a big bank. Now, I don't think it's inconceivable that they will they will collude um, as the regulation allows them. The big four policy means that you've already got de facto collusion anyway. Um, 
and they're not going to lend to coal. They're not going to lend to other things. They've seized. What happens when the left seizes financial intermediation and chokes off anything that is non-left wing? What, what do we do then? Do we say, well, that's just the market operating, which of course it isn't because it's a highly constrained market, or do we get in there and say, no, you are going to lend to coal whether you like it or not? Yeah, look, look. So I, I, I agree. That's a very real possibility, and we've seen well, the trend in ethical investment and so forth it, heading in that direction. It wouldn't be surprising to me if the big four banks got together and, and said the same thing. But um, uh, the, the problem there is we have a very uncompetitive sector, and I know I know we agree on this issue, Dan. The, the, the big issue that we have in the political power that the large banks are able to wield is because we've regulated them so that they have that sort of political power. The answer is to get rid of the political power, whether they're acting in left-wing or pro-capitalist positions whatsoever. Now, we might say, of course, well, it's not possible to get rid of those regulations. Prudential regulations aren't going to be unwound in our lifetime. In the meantime, we still need cheap electricity. But, well, you know, I'm at a blockchain conference, guys, so um, I'm going to say that it, it, it is coming and that will save our coal mines. Very oh. good to hear. No, but hang, hang on. Let's just go to that ferret hole just a, a little bit. Obligatory so blockchain. We'll just come back into the. We're coming back into the real world where we where we are right now, which is um, we're oh, not going right. to get rid, we're not going to get rid of that reg, we're not going to get rid of that regulation tomorrow. Um, no. So what do we do in the what do we do in the meantime? I, I think there is a real question of no, what, in a practical sense, do we do in in the meantime while the left is seizing command of the capital flows in the economy. Well, what yeah. do we do? Well, one of the things, uh, Chris. But at the same time, Dan, no, no, Chris, to, Chris, to I'm gonna, to that. Chris, I'm going to throw to you, mate. One of the things we can do is have some leadership, which political leadership, which is stunningly uninterested in woke capitalism. And there is a bloke, Pennsylvania Avenue, Donald Trump Jr., <laughs> absolutely uninterested in woke capitalism, despises the CEOs of the corp, sort of CEOs that we've been talking about. And uh, we're starting to see the results of that in the US. So I'd, I'd actually like to pivot to um, thinking about how this has been playing out in the, in the US because uh, well, if we've been identifying a problem, um, in many ways this, this is a reaction against all of those trends that, that elected Trump and to some extent has enabled uh, the subsequent policy agenda and he's been around long enough now that we're starting to see some outcomes of that in the, in the real economy in the US. Well, yeah. I mean, so th- that is that is absolutely right. So there's a um, the U.S. has an extremely low unemployment rate, an unemployment rate that we thought was a bit fantastic, or fantastical, I should say, um, uh, in the 2000s and 1990s um, uh, of sorry, I'm just pulling it up here of 3.6 percent. It's got a very good um, uh, economic growth, not as relatively strong historically as the unemployment rate, but very good at about um, 3.2% growth in the first quarter. This is this is excellent, and this is, um, uh, on, on the face of it, a, a really stunning success for, for Trump and the Republicans' economic policy. I think there's uh, a few things going on. There are some things that I think are, are really good in the Trump economic plan and some things that I'm deeply concerned about, but obviously the big thing that's happened is the regulation reduction. I was looking at um, some regulatory reform uh, data uh, uh, from American Action Forum. They've got a website called Regulation Rodo- Rodeo, which I recommend people see. And what is quite striking is, and I'm, I'm a big cynic about a lot of deregulation programs because a lot of co- governments talk about deregulation and don't really do it. 
in 2017, so his first year in government, there was an increase in regulatory costs of about 30 billion, and that's largely because of things that were occurring because of the during the Obama age. But in 2008, there was actually a six billion dollar regulatory decrease in regular uh, cost in uh, decrease in regulatory costs. There's been a um, eight billion or so increase in 2019 so far. But on any measure, a um, net zero growth in regulation over the last two years is an incredible success and a historical success. I suspect that a lot of what is going on with the US economy is not even just that these particular regulatory changes have um, affected the economy, but the economy might be starting to price in um, expected decreases or at least expected lack of growth in regulation. And that that is a great thing. Now, I'm really worried about the trade war. I'm really worried about the deficit. But right now, those two things do not seem to be showing up in the US in the macroeconomic statistics. Of course. And we also had the massive corporate tax cuts from 35 to 21%, uh, which increased investment in, in the US. And also a key focus on the energy sector, opening up America's domestic energy sector, which has helped further drive down their domestic energy uh, prices. And we've also seen a massive expansion of both jobs in the coal sector and also jobs in the manufacturing sector, Um over the over the period of the Trump administration, manufacturing jobs are up around four hundred and fifty thousand, and that was after Obama said those jobs ain't coming back. So <laughs> it's been very. What are you going to do? Wave a wand? He magically said, and Trump said, "Yeah, I've got a few wands that I'll wave." And um, a lot of these jobs, a lot of these jobs have come back through good old a lot of bread and butter um, economic reform. Yeah. Uh, now, the, the, to some extent, uh, I've argued this in the context of left wing and conservative governments alike, the, the, these governments are very often pushed around by long-run cycles, and the long-run cycle that we've been suffering through over the last decade has been the um, results of the global financial crisis, but whether um, through <laughs> natural causes or whether through deliberate policy choices, and I suspect that, the, in fact, I, I know that the GFC was, um, uh, was extended and was made deeper because of um, policy choices made by the Obama administration. It seems like the GFC is finally over, at least in the United States. Now, these jobs haven't been created by the Obama administration. They've been created by businesses, but to the extent that the, as you say, um, Dan, the corporate tax cuts and the regulatory changes um, have been affected, the, the administration seems to have allowed or opened an opportunity for economic growth and, and job creation. Um, this is something that Trump is clearly very proud of because I was just looking at his tweets yesterday, um, which um, and he mentions he he mentions the the low unemployment rate at least sort of ten times in the last twelve <laughs> days. Um, so you know a lot of all you know the left are all saying it's hyperbole and it's exaggeration. And Bernie Sanders said that um, yes, the economy is doing well, but I'm sure I don't have to give Trump any credit for it. Um, so I had a look at the the unemployment rates, and it's really interesting. So amongst Asian Americans, it's 2.1% unemployment. Um, amongst women, it's 3.1%, and that's the lowest since 1953, which is, so for a misogynist, he's, he's doing pretty well, I think. <laughs> um, amongst the Hispanics, it's 4.2%, and that's the lowest since 1973. And then people with a disability, that's they've only been recording it since 2008, but it's the lowest, 6.3%. And among African Americans, 6.2%, and it was 15.6% in 2010. Mm. So that's a huge drop. And so I think he's, he's he had, rightly so. I'd be tweeting that too if I was Trump. Yeah, it sort of maps, maps to his, his social story as well. Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, there's there's, uh, there's always that argument against Republicans. Oh, they're just obsessed with the economy. They don't care about the people. But 
Um, it's not a bad story to take into 2020. That's it's, a, it's a pretty good story. And Obama didn't have this story. But, so, but Bella, as, as you know, I mean, those aren't, those aren't the only tweets that he's been putting out. No, I know, but I was just looking at those ones <laughs> just for this story. And, and, yeah. No collusion, no collusion. Yeah, no collusion. There was a lot well, of collusion, no obstruction. No collusion. <laughs> collusion, delusion. No, no, <laughs> um, to the extent that that affects the economy. But no, I mean, I'm, I am genuinely and seriously worried about the big two on the, uh, on the other side, which is the trade war. Um, and the US government appears to be walking well, not walking, has completely marched itself into a trade war that it seems to believe will be paid by China, not by Australia, uh, by American consumers. And even more than that, the, the conversation that no one is having and no side of politics is able to deal with is that the deficit is now a $1.1 trillion deficit. This starts to take a toll on economic growth. This starts to fuel um, serious macroeconomic problems. And there is no side of politics. Neither the Republicans nor um, the Democrats that have any plan to get out of this. In fact, they all sides of politics want to go further into it. And it's the same again with the trade war. I mean, they, it, wouldn't it be nice if there was a Democrat who was standing up and saying, you know what, free markets and free trade are actually the best alternative. But they seem to be jumping over themselves to, to, to at least follow Trump, if not replicate him. Oh. That, those are big problems. Those are big problems. And, and you can cut regulations and you can cut tax. But if you also, at the same time, increase taxes as a tariff is on American consumers and you don't deal with the deficit, you don't try to bring the budget back into um, at least manageable levels, then if those, those problems could come up before 2020 is up. The um, issue of debt and deficit and government spending is an interesting one to me because this is not just an American thing. This is a, it's in Australia. I think it's a Western world uh, issue, which is that uh, we sort of live in an age where cost doesn't really matter, that debt, pe- people don't see the actual cost um, of the massive expansion of, of government spending. And so all oh, this is pushed off into the future. Now, there will be a day of reckoning. The, all the debt needs to be paid back um, at some point in time. But we really are in this... I don't want to use the word bubble because I bring that brings up a lot of connotations, but we kind of are in a in a, in a massive government bubble, you know, which is um, all this free stuff, all this spending. Don't worry about it. We're going to grow our way out of debt and deficit, and you will, you know, economic growth will naturally help you pay down debt. But you never, I well, mean, well, Australia, well, America. It's a, bit, it's a bit like Bill Shorten uh, when he was asked to, for the costings on the climate change policy. Essentially, he said, "Well, it's too important for costings." Well, but that that that's a really interesting point because a lot of people would say that's right. He is selling values and the coalition's talking about numbers. Who cares about numbers when you've got values and you're saving the planet? Mm. So that is a much, much bigger issue for the right to understand. Um, but on, on the, I just want to make a quick comment just on the trade war. I think it's terrible economics. But there is, of course, a broader concern, strategic concern about China and the fact that when you're doing business with China, you're not really doing business with a, a sort of mono-e-mono on a market-based system. They've got the Chinese Communist Party in the background sitting there. And I think, you know, Trump, the good thing about Trump is he's actually brought China uh, to the forefront, China's strategic ambitions to the forefront, whether uh, dealing with them in this way is smart or not, I don't know. But raising the profile of China as a serious competitor um, to America and to America's dominance economically and, and militarily, and therefore to the safety and security of the West, um, I think has been a positive contribution he's made to this discussion, albeit uh, potentially in a very costly way. 
And it's now. Um, but, I mean, there, there were, he he actively rejected better ways to deal with a rising China. Now, now you might be right that that he's made it the centre of the political discussion, and that that might be true from an American domestic policy perspective, and 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 I guess good on him in that respect. But if he'd stayed, if the United States had stayed in the TPP, that was a much stronger constraint against China. Ironically, the very thing that he wants to get, he could have gotten much clearer and much more aggressively if he'd stayed in the giant trading block that we were creating. And instead, we're, we're cycling down into this trade war where not only is he increasing taxes on consumers, he's now recognizing that those will be huge burdens on both consumers and the agricultural sector. So we're talking about bumping up farm subsidies as well. This is, this is, this is what you expect from a trade war, I guess, but it's, um, we, we should not be um, uh, very welcoming yeah, and, and a long way to run. It's now what what Dan just described is now bipartisan in the US. So it wouldn't wouldn't matter who wins. Um, wouldn't matter whether what what uh, uh, the China's able the to accomplish board. on social media the during board. the election campaign. The, whoever gets elected will probably absorb this kind of worldview. Um, I'm going to take a big leap. Actually, speak, speaking of China, we have reached that part <laughs> of our our looking forward podcast where we talk about what. Uh, people have been reading, watching, and listening to our books and culture segment, and um, and Chris, China produces many, many great things, um, historic electronics, and also cars and electric cars. Also, authors, tell us about the Wandering Earth. Yeah, um, so I've been reading The Wandering Earth, which is a um, short story, a science fiction short story collection by uh, Toshin Liu. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but probably not. Um, the Wandering Earth, it's, uh, as I said, it's a, a short story. It's just now been made into apparently just a massive Chinese blockbuster. Um, Dushin Liu is the author of the more famous book, The Three Body Problem, um, which is a, a, an amazing book and I also recommend, but that hasn't actually been developed into any um, – television or movie probably unfilmable sort of a, well yeah but they keep trying so you know they, they'll film it a lot of things are unfilmable that will be filmed apparently the movie the wandering earth is is um rubbish but the book <laughs> is fantastic so um Dushin Liu is writes extremely scientifically literate science fiction um it's very i mean you i haven't read a great deal of chinese literature but um it feels very chinese in one sense so it's um, uh, it's about lots of people. There are lots of people in his stories and there is lots of time in his stories. Things take a great deal of time uh, over centuries and thousands of years. So the story without spoiling it, The Wandering Earth, is um, the sun is about to um, uh, uh, collapse or, or massively grow so that it would swallow up Earth. So in the story of The Wandering Earth, the um, uh, all the humans get together and turn the earth itself into a, uh, a spaceship. So they build these giant rockets around <laughs> the earth. and They push it out of the way to, so that they can travel for thousands of years to the next star system. It gets um, get a bit cold, uh, it, wouldn't it? Well, it gets, lots of things happen. I, I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> um, uh, it, the, the book has a sort of quiet brutality about the, um, the, you know, the, the, the amount of people who don't survive this um, in, incredible, um, extraordinary uh, task. Um, what what Dershin Liu though across his stories is uh, he's very interested in. Again, this is really interested when you think about Chinese politics and Chinese history. He's very interested in social upheaval and conflict that responds 
or that results from when societies try to respond to external forces, external challenges like the sun sun blowing up. So how does society decide to launch itself um, across the galaxy, the universe? How does society and and then you know does everybody agree and do they fight and all that sort of thing? And and all his stories cover a lot of those sort of themes. They are great reads and and um uh, really anything that he writes is 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 great fun if nothing else but they're they're deep and smart and and enjoyable fellow panelists what else have we got uh well last night um i went to see something which is probably totally opposite to science fiction um i went to see cosi van tutte at the um opera house not the opera house the art center um which is um one of mozart's last operas and one of my favourites, I think, probably my favourite. And it's Cosia um, Funtute translates as all women are the same. So if they put that, if they advertised it that way in this state, <laughs> there would have been protesters outside. In there would have been lefty <laughs> feminists before the human rights commission outside uh, with their terrible short haircuts <laughs> and their. But isn't that what fringes. they think the, with identity politics that all women are just you know a group? Well, that's that's a good point. Maybe actually. they'd like Maybe it. Maybe they'd like it. Yeah. Oh, look, it's so confusing these days. <laughs> yeah. But luckily they've kept it in Italian and it was an absolutely wonderful production and um, I recommend it if, if anybody wants to go and see it. They did a brilliant job. Um, it's a really hard opera to sing. Um, Mozart actually hated the girlfriend of Da Ponte who was the librettist and who sang one of the major female parts and he deliberately wrote the <laughs> the, the part so that her head would be wobbling around on stage like a chicken. <laughs> Um, so, you know, she made it really difficult to sing. So well done for the soprano who, who got through it last night. What, wobbling? A wob- he wanted to make her head wobble around on the stage like a chicken. Like a chicken. Yeah. That is was that, Mozart's that sense of humour. That was Mozart's Fantastic. sense of humour. Uh, I don't know anything about this opera, and uh, or many operas at all for that matter, but I, I did love the, the program notes, which you'll, you'll find in the notes to this podcast. Says two young men are boasting about their lover's fidelity, but the cynical old bachelor Don Alfonso scoffs at their certainty. And this is the part I like. Determined to prove him wrong, the pair dress up as Albanians <laughs> and attempt to seduce the other's lover. <laughs> so, speaking of political incorrectness, what is it about Albanians that? You well, know, I think last night they're dressed as sort of Turks. I don't even know if they're Albanians because it, it it's sort of a. I, I suppose at the time it was. Um, would a little bit t- more Turkey, exotic, Turkish, Turkish Albanian. Well, yeah, it's far enough away. Far enough away, but still get familiar away, enough. Get, a, get away with anything. It was believable that they were in Naples, I suppose. <laughs> I, I, don't, I mean, it wasn't believable. I mean, the fact that they were completely the same men, just wearing moustaches and beards, and the women fall for it. Is yeah, it's like, oh, I, he doesn't oh, look gosh, like anyone look I know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so look, it could be, it's, 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 it gets a lot of criticism as being quite a superficial play, because it was one, uh, sorry, opera, because it was one that wasn't based on... <laughs> It wasn't based on a play. It was. It was just. It was based on a on hearsay of some story that apparently happened in Naples. So, so a, a lot of critics say that it's too comedic and too superficial. But it has the most glorious um, music in the first act. I think that Mozart ever wrote. You mean entertainment for its own sake? Heaven yes, forbid. exactly. Um, you know, and you can read. Well, there's not that much you can read into it other than you know we're all fallible and everyone's ridiculous and 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 it's just. It's it's just a really lovely. And if your girlfriend's boyfriend turns up with a false mustache, then be probably worried. be worried. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> ah, so I've been reading a book by Brink Lindsay and Stephen Tallis, who are free market academics at the United States, the Cato Institute, uh, called the Captured Captured uh, Economy. It's basically a uh, an analysis and exegesis of of crony capitalism and corporatism in 
uh, in the United States. It goes across a lot of sectors of um, the economy. It's called the captured economy because it's a way in which special interests are able to capture uh, capture the economy, capture uh, market segmentation through to, as a result of government regulation and special favours and so forth. The uh, most interesting part is about the uh, global financial crisis and the government's response to that and, and the bailout of the of um, of the banks uh, at the expense of taxpayers. Um, there's lots of important lessons for Australia. We have a lot of similar issues, perhaps not on quite as big of a scale, but uh, superannuation is is an exemplar um, of of crony capitalism in this country. Uh, we've been talking about the financial sector in the context of home loans. Um, with uh, massive government support, massive regulatory apparatus and a whole range of subsidies and other ways in which the government really does support um, a small number of large players in a range of sectors of the economy, um, which has all the associated uh, economic effects, we know, with less competition. But there's also very important cultural effects. People feel like the system is rigged, uh, and it is in many ways, Um but they think it's rigged in a way that it really isn't. So when they, you'll hear people complain about neoliberalism and capitalism, for example, but we don't really have a capitalist-based economy. We have a crony capitalist economic system, and that's what's driving a lot of the problems that people rightly identify. For example, the size of Australia's financial sector as a percentage of GDP is the largest um, in the OECD, and that's largely because, not because we have a great financial sector, but because we have a big government that supports them. So lots of important lessons for Australia and likely to become a bigger issue under a future Labor government, I would suggest. Stephen, Stephen Tellis um, wrote a really a fantastic piece uh, in 2012 um, for actually the New America Foundation, which is a progressive organisation called Cludocracy that I really like because um, one of the, and th- this is complementary to, to it sounds like the argument of this book, but the kludocracy argument is that um, it's not about red tape per se, but it's just the sheer complexity of um, bureaucratic service provision. So, for instance, the healthcare system, the Byzantine way they fund higher education, the complexities behind the federal state governance system and the welfare state and environmental regulation. And he says that this has created a just a jerry-rigged, opaque and complicated political system that is just really hard to navigate, or at least it's really hard for people like us to navigate. It's much easier for a large firm with large resources to navigate and therefore take advantage of it. So um, a big part of this captured economy thing is, is just sheer bureaucratic complexity when the government decides to get involved I mean, to go back to the housing thing, the government decides to regulate supply heavily. So then it realizes that people are being locked out of the housing market. So now it needs to start providing subsidies to house, housing policy. And then when that goes wrong, we have a global financial crisis and there'll be more regulations and on and on and on. And this is just how growth slows, how economies stagnate. And, and the returns to lobbying are about uh, 20 times as great as the returns on uh, actual investment in capital equipment or anything like uh, anything that's yeah. actually productive. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I have been so here, so cheery book, uh, and you will find a link to that um, recommendation by Daniel Wild. Um, I've been reading uh, a new book on Goethe, um, Johann Wolfgang Goethe, the uh, uh, German poet and writer, it's called Goethe, Life as a Work of Art uh, by Rudiger Safransky. 
It's uh, who's also done biographies of uh, Schopenhauer and Schiller and Nietzsche and Heidegger. And uh, I'm interested in this book not just because of him as a poet and writer, he's a, um, you know, a massive, towering figure in, in literature, but uh, really what it means for freedom uh, because he was uh, born around 1750 and uh, in, in that late 18th century period you were coming out of the Enlightenment and, and Goethe was one of the first um, uh, who, who started to break with that and really get back to a more sort of uh, romantic ideal uh, of uh, the, the art, the individual artist and, and creativity. So I've been reading this book and um, even the title Life as a Work of Art shows how Goethe was almost you know, self-consciously modelling his own life uh, as a work of art, a little bit like Rousseau. And um, the movement he started, he wrote a book called uh, The Sorrows of Young Werther, where you know, this lovelorn figure can't, can't uh, consummate his love for uh, the woman that he wants because um, uh, she's already betrothed to, uh, in fact, uh, Werther's uh, friend. So, of course, he kills himself and... Um, <laughs> And to this day, allegedly, you know, there were copycat suicides, which is probably BS. Certainly, Safransky says so. But the point is, you know, this this is seventeen seventy five, so it's it's pre the the romantic movement uh, in full swing, which came, you know, probably thirty forty years later. But um, to me, the point that it proves is uh, is not that the Enlightenment, uh, the elevation of reason, is responsible for all the. Um, the the, uh, the you know the the bad things that came later um, you know particularly in the twentieth century it's it's this reaction against the enlightenment and um, I think uh, Bushnell calls it the Gnostic fallacy or something like sounds that. sounds about right yeah. yeah the divine spark within <laughs> us if we only if we only listen to our own genius and and uh, so that's that's why I'm reading this book because unpacking all that stuff is very important he was friends with. Uh, a guy called uh, uh, Johann Gottfried Herder, who you know started talking about the German uh, folk and the uniqueness of of Germany and its its deep culture and and we all know where that finished up. So um, it, it's uh, it's a it's a life, it's a biography, uh, it's an intellectual biography, an artistic biography, but it also uh, I think can be read as something that reflects on the importance of. Um, what a real Enlightenment looks like, um, much closer to the British Enlightenment. And um, so I look forward to uh, finishing this one and then I, I might get a, a second bite on, on looking forward at some time soon. We'll put a link to that in the notes. What a highbrow selection of culture picks, everyone. Well done. <laughs> we are getting a bit carried away. But it's, I'm it's, just it's pretending. <laughs> I don't actually care about it. They're all about freedom. <laughs> I'd rather talk about the footy, to be honest, but I'm allowed It's about freedom and Albanians. <laughs> I want to talk about Fantasia, but yeah. <laughs> Fantasia. Fantasia. The Avengers but I'm not allowed to. <laughs> Sorry, AFL reference there. Um, Brian Taylor, if you're listening, is he, is he a member? I don't oh, know. yeah, I certainly hope so. AFL, he certainly should be. AFL footballer and commentator, Brian Taylor. Yeah, welcome to Looking Forward. We'll have you on next week. <laughs> um, if you're not already a subscriber to Looking Forward, you can follow our podcast on uh, Apple's podcast app, Podbean, or any other podcast platforms. Go to our website for more information. Looking Forward was brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs to support our research and this podcast. Join or donate at opa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thank you. To Daniel Wilde. Thank you. Bella Debrera. Thank you. And, of course, our producer, James Bolt. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week. <laughs>